This morning we come to the third and the last of our three messages designed to reacquaint us with the synoptic Gospels. Those Gospels that are the first three in our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called synoptics because of the same view that they seem to take basically of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, at least they're more, very similar in contrast to John's Gospel, which is quite different. Today our attention is turned to the Gospel according to Matthew. And you recall that we've been using a similar method in our study of these Gospels. We're looking to say something about the, the sources for each of these Gospels, and then say something about their structure. And finally, uh, the story that these Gospels tell. And in my mind, this is a handy outline. It has served us well for two weeks, so we'll look to employ it one more time. So if you're tired of it, next week we won't be doing this. Next week will be something completely different. But if it's been helpful, well, I hope it is. It's been helpful for me to organize my thoughts around these three matters of sources, structure, and story. With respect to the sources of Matthew's Gospel, they're very similar to those that Mark employed and Luke employed, but from a different vantage point for Matthew, because Matthew was an apostle. If in fact it's Matthew the tax collector, uh, who's uh, spoken of in this Gospel, called Levi, in uh, the Gospel according to Mark, if in fact it is that very apostle that Jesus called to be an eyewitness to the things he did and the words he spoke, then Matthew's approach to the oral and the traditions about Jesus is that from an eyewitness vantage point. He saw the things themselves. He was there. He had been with Jesus when he preached the sermons he preached. He had been with Jesus when he performed the healings that he performed. He had access to his, brother, his brothers, his, his brethren, other eyewitnesses. And I'm sure they gathered together, they spoke of the things Jesus said and did. Um, I'm sure that they sharpened one another's thinking about uh, the things that our Lord uh, taught, the, the mighty acts that he performed. And uh, I'm sure they discussed these things long into the night and uh, talked about these things day by day by day. And so Mark, Matthew had much opportunity to be reminded of the things he saw, to be reminded of the words of Jesus and of the, the, acts, the actions of Jesus, and to have his understanding of those things strengthened and fine-tuned by his own interaction by others in the apostolic community. And then he also likely had Mark's Gospel, in print, at least a copy of it available to him, and maybe other written accounts that Luke refers to. He says many of them were had undertaken to write accounts of the things most surely believed among us. Perhaps others things Matthew also had access to. Um, but more than others, um, I'm sorry, not more than others, but uh, with respect to his gospel, one of the things that perhaps more than others we note is Matthew's appreciation and his sourcing out Old Testament scripture. 
all the Gospels had access to the Old Testament Scripture, but one of the things that we've noted is that each of the Gospel writer sees Jesus perhaps through the eyes of different portions of the Old Testament Scriptures. One of the things we made clear in the earlier messages was that in John's Gospel there was a particular dependence that John seemed to have upon Ezekiel. He saw Jesus through Ezekiel's prophecy saw Jesus as the one who brings living water. We find in Ezekiel 47, he's the one who authors new birth that God said he would bring to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36. He's the one who is the true vine, as we find in Ezekiel chapter 17. He's the one who is the, the good shepherd, as Ezekiel tells us in 34 and 37. Um, and many other things. The temple, for instance. Uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. He's the, the living temple, the risen temple. Um, again, going back to the vision of Ezekiel with reference to the visions of, of God in terms of the temple vision. All fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the, the fulfillment of these uh, under these. Ways of seeing God's working amongst his people all come to fruition, all come to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew's very conscious of that as well. I'm sorry, I need to back up again. But you also saw not just that John had his dependence upon Ezekiel, but that Mark, the only prophet he mentions is Isaiah. No other prophet is spoken of in Mark's gospel. And he's seeing Jesus through the eyes of the messianic prophecies found in Isaiah, beginning with John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord in chapter 40. Um, he is um, presenting Jesus really in the light of the Old Testament portrayal we find in the book of Isaiah. Luke probably is more general in his approach. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that Jesus showed them from the entirety of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Luke's quoting Psalms, Luke's quoting law, Luke's quoting prophets um, in abundance. And he takes from many of the portions of the Old Testament to give us his own picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about Matthew? And Matthew clearly is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. He's the one who tells us at least some dozen times, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord I'm sorry, what the Lord has spoken through the prophet saying. That's a formula that's used no less than 12 times in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is to be understood as the fulfillment of the prophetic word. But understanding Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the prophetic word, does he have a special prophet that he appeals to? Well, certainly, Matthew tells us things about Jesus through the eyes of Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah fairly often. But there is one prophet who doesn't get any mention anywhere else, I'm aware of at least, in the Gospels, in any of the Gospels, that Matthew tells us quite a bit about, or at least Matthew refers to him more than he refers to any other prophet, at least by name. And that's the prophet Jeremiah. Kind of interesting, kind of strange, if you will, that the prophet Jeremiah has such a place in the Gospel according to Matthew. We find it in chapter 2 and verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
In chapter 31 of Jeremiah's prophecy, he speaks about Rachel weeping for her children, who when Herod killed the infants of Bethlehem. It's the prophet Jeremiah that gets quoted in chapter 2 and verse 17. In chapter 27 and verse 9, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah. We find Jesus quotes the temple sermon in the casting out of the money changes from the temple. Chapter 7 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah <coughs> says has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes Jesus quotes that very passage in Matthew chapter 21 but perhaps the most interesting and surprising of Jeremiah references is in chapter 16 when Jesus and his disciples came to Caesarea Philippi there's a famous question Jesus asked of his disciples he said who do men say that I the son of man and what's the word about me what are people theorizing about me what are people saying about me who do men say that I the son of man am and the answer that's given in Matthew chapter 16 in verse 18 is that some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and others listen to this Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Who would think to refer to the prophets of Israel in general and put in the lead Jeremiah? I think if you and I would refer to the prophets of Israel, we would say Isaiah first. Isaiah foremost. Isaiah, or one of the prophets. But yet, in a gospel in which Jeremiah gets quoted at the beginning, at the end, at the middle, Jesus is referred to as Jeremiah, possibly Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why? Why were people thinking of Jesus in Jeremiah-like terms? Why is Matthew thinking of Jesus with quotations from Jeremiah? Well, lots of answers are given, and I'm not going to give you all the answers that are possible, but it's likely that Jesus reflects Jeremiah in a number of ways. Jeremiah was rejected by the people of his own city. The city of Anathoth. They sought to put him to death. The people of Nazareth also rejected Jesus. Jesus as a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. His own people, his own citizens of his own city did not embrace him. He did not many mighty, did not many mighty, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They were not believing in him. Well, we know his family. We know his father Joseph. We know his brothers and his sisters. He ain't much. And they were offended because of the familiarity with him. Well, the people of Anathoth also were offended by Jeremiah. Jeremiah was also a prophet whom God sent to preach his words in the temple. He made his appearance again and again in the temple. Finally, he got banned from the temple. They wouldn't let him in. But Jeremiah is associated with the temple. His temple sermon in chapter 7 and following um, may also indicate the fact that Jesus was associated with the temple in Jerusalem. Although much of the action takes place in Galilee, um, Matthew knew. Jesus also, when he went to the, to the feasts, was, made his appearance in the temple. Jesus, when he ultimately comes to Jerusalem, that final Passover, goes into the temple casts out the money changers 
and is associated with Jeremiah in the very passage that's quoted from Jeremiah 7. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Perhaps it's the fact that Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, as Isaiah 53 portrays him. Who more than Jeremiah was a man of sorrows in the Old Testament? What prophet cried more bitterly than Jeremiah did? He has a whole book called Lamentations. And in his prophecy, at least five major episodes of Jeremiah, sometimes they're called the Confessions of Jeremiah. I don't know why they're called the Confessions. Maybe he's confessing his sin. People think, I'm not sure. But they're also Lamentations of what they are. He's pouring out his heart in the presence of God. He's cursed on the very day of his birth because of all the hardship and the miseries that he's experiencing and that the nation was called upon to experience. Perhaps it was that aspect of Jeremiah's personage that was reflected in the Lord Jesus that people thought, well, maybe it's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But perhaps in my mind, the relationship that's most obvious to me is that Jeremiah has a mission that God sets him upon. And it's described in the use of four Hebrew negatives and two positives. Jeremiah's work was to be a work of plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. Those four things. Chapter 1. God says he was to go, to, he was commissioned to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow. And then the two positives, to build and to plant. And at least the building part clearly is used in Matthew. Agricultural terms of planting is used in Matthew. And also much of Jesus' description of what's going to happen in the nation of Israel, this matter of plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing was also an aspect of Jesus' own work. He was sent to speak against the systems that existed in the Israel of his day, of his day that had gone woefully wrong. The abuses of the temple, the profaning of the worship of God, the Pharisaic externalization of religion. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You encompass sea and land, thinking to make one proselyte to yourself, and you make them twice the son of hell as you are. That's what Jesus tells them. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the platter, while inside they're full of greed and of self-indulgence. Jeremiah was called to cry against the hypocrisy of the nation. Jesus is called to speak against the hypocrisy, the false religion, the idolatry, of the nation both of them spoke about the fall of the temple remember the the apostles come to Jesus and show them all the beautiful buildings of the temple thinking the Lord would be impressed it's Herod's temple it took 36 years to build it it really was a wonder people speak about the size and the structure of Herod's temple and you see people make reconstructions of it all the time it's a, it must have been a wonder to behold 
People came from all the world to come to Herod's temple and worship, or at least come and see how worship was conducted amongst the Jews. And Jesus wasn't impressed. He said, not one stone will be upon another. All of it will be destroyed. Jeremiah was to prophesy to a nation that was under judgment. The Babylonians were coming and they would invade and the temple will fall and the city will be torched. And Jesus says to his own generation, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that her desolation is nigh. He tells them to flee the city. And the Christians did. When the fall of Jerusalem came about in 70 AD, when, when Titus and the Roman legions came to destroy the city, the Christians by and large left. They were warned by Jesus. They fled to the mountains. They fled to a place called Pella in the Transjordan where they found safety. And so as Jeremiah was a prophet preaching or prophesying of the destruction of the system of religion that had gotten enmeshed in idolatry and false religion and profaning worship and all those institutions of Israel's worship are going to topple one after another after another after another when the Babylonians invaded so Jesus spoke of the coming Roman legions the coming fall of the city Jesus spoke of the folly of the religion that sought to put new wine into old wineskins now you need new wineskins Jesus comes to bring in something new he speaks about the kingdom being taken away from this unworthy nation and being given to a nation bringing forth the fruits of the kingdom Jesus says every tree that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up in Matthew 15 and verse 13 there's the language of planting built to plant and to plant and then there's also the language of building Jesus says I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it Jesus comes to bring in a new order of things new wine into new wine skins a church that will be associated not with Abraham by natural birth but by with Jesus by living faith I will build my church my assembly the principle of this organization being faith in him the gates of Hades would not prevail against it Jesus comes to bring in a new thing a new Israel a new people a new creation the new exodus, the new blessings of the new covenant. He says in the Lord's in the Supper, this, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. So I think that's where probably we ought to be thinking and recognizing why Jeremiah comes into full view in this book uh, but not in the others, really not anywhere else in the New Testament except in Paul. Jeremiah makes a comeback in Paul. Paul describes his conversion in the very terms that Jeremiah described his call, or the prophecy describes his call. Before, his, before his, he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was set apart. And he was made a, and Jeremiah was made a, a prophet to the nations. Paul says, he that set me apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles, an apostle to the nations. And Paul sees his ministry also in Jeremiah terms. But interestingly enough, when the new covenant comes in after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul tells us that his ministry is no longer a ministry 
But plucking up, tearing down, he's not going about breaking things. Paul speaks at least three times in the book of 2 Corinthians about the authority that the Lord had given him for building up and not tearing down. In the new covenant, our work is constructive work. It's work of edification. It's work of building up. It's engaging along with Jesus from the throne of his glory in the work of the spread of his gospel that is by and large that work of positive proclamation of the message that offers hope to the hopeless. It offers forgiveness to sinners. It offers life to the dead. And I think Christians are all wrong thinking our great work is going around breaking things. Our work is a work of building, of planting, bringing the gospel seed to put it into the soil. Let God do the work, a blessing. We shouldn't be turning all negative and all hostile and all ugly as we face this world. We just show forth the reality of the greatness of the God, of the love of the God who sends Jesus into the world in a mission of love and mercy. To bring pardon and forgiveness to all who will turn to God through faith in Him. Well, it's interesting that Jeremiah does take such a prominent place in the New Testament when so little of this book is actually quoted, but yet what is quoted is the New Covenant. There's a new covenant that God makes in which the law is not written externally but internally. In which all who are part of this covenant people know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. And in which the great note of the reality of this new covenant is, is not sin, but for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. I've been talking to some people in recent days about what in fact is the essence of the biblical message. And I know the message of the gospel involves the reality of sin. I know the reality of the fall. I know the reality of a broken world. I know the reality of the sins that I, my own soul has been guilty of and needs pardoned from. But the great blessing of the gospel is that forgiveness is offered. It's not just get, get lost in the morass of your sins. Fail them deeply. Fail them penitently. Moan and groan for the plague of your heart. I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> and I tell you something, brethren. You never help me put to death one sin, just feeling all strung out and hung over by the reality of the, the plague of my heart. But when I'm able to look away from my sins to, to my Savior, when I'm able to see in Jesus the one who helps, the one who pardons, the one who cleanses, the one who gives strength, the one who lifts us up out of the morass, puts our feet on solid ground, he's our helper, he's our strength, he gives us enablement to be covenant keepers and living, living out the requirements of the gospel as we run the race set before us looking not to our sins but to Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith there is another Old Testament source but I don't know what to make of it I'll tell you what it is you want to know the other source is what's called the book of the twelve you say, wait a minute, the Book of the Twelve, you're not bringing in the Book of Mormon now. No, I'm not. I'm not bringing Honestly, this is not Book of Mormon. The Book of the Twelve is the way that the 
Old Testament people of God referred to the what we call the minor prophets. We call them minor prophets. That's the book of the twelve. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, um, something in between Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, Malachi. Anyway, I probably didn't get them all. At least I got 11 out of 12, which is pretty good. But anyway, um, my point of bringing this up is that the books of the book of the 12, those books from Hosea to Malachi, find frequent mention in 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 Matthew's gospel. They're not found in Mark. These quotes are not found in Luke, but they are found in Matthew. Chapter 2, you have two quotes from the book of the Twelve. When the wise men come to Bethlehem and say, where is he born the king of the Jews? You know what they do? Matthew tells us they quote Micah 5.2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. You, O Bethlehem, afraid of are not the least of the cities, uh, the least of the cities in Israel, but out of you will come forth the one who will be the prince. God's, God's Messiah will come from Bethlehem in accordance with Micah's prophecy. And then when the families warned about Herod's wrath and the war to flee to Egypt, it says that the scriptures might be fulfilled that says, out of Egypt have I called my son. That's Hosea 11 and verse 1. And then there's two references in Jesus' ministry in Galilee to the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6. You know what it says in Hosea 6 and verse 6? Jesus says, go learn what this means. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go learn what this means. And then he tells them later on, if you knew what this meant, you would have not condemned the guilty. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea 6, 6. Found in Matthew 9:11 and 12:7, and then the book of Malachi about God sending His messenger before His face, meaning John the Baptist, is quoted in Matthew's gospel, not with regard to chapter three when John's ministry begins, but when it's reviewed later on in chapter 11 and verse 10. That quote is mentioned, Malachi 3:1. And then Zechariah 9.9 is mentioned when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And Zechariah 9.9 is quoted there. And then Matthew 21 and verse 5. I'm sorry, Matthew 21 verse 5 is the quote from Zechariah 9.9. Now, that's the information. Send it out to you. The exact significance to this frequent reference to the book of the Twelve is difficult to say. I'm not sure what it means. Perhaps it's just best to say that Matthew is concerned to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophetic word in something of the fullness in which that prophetic word is found. Because he does quote Isaiah as well as Jeremiah. And he does quote these many books of the Twelve. Because Matthew's story, just to anticipate it for a moment, is the story of promise and fulfillment. It's the promise of the Old Testament prophets that Jesus comes to bring into its fulfillment. So, so much resources. Let me say something about structure very quickly. Matthew takes the best from both Mark and Luke and develops it his own way. Like, like Luke, Matthew presents Jesus in a fuller way than Mark does. He gives us a birth narrative. But in Matthew's gospel, it's not from Mary's perspective like Luke was. It's from his father's perspective. It's Joseph who's the central figure in the birth narrative of Matthew chapter 1. 
Both Matthew and Luke have origins and preparation for public ministry and baptism and temptation in the wilderness. Um, Mark presents some of that. Luke presents it more fully. Matthew also presents it more fully. But Matthew does it in a full, an interesting way. The whole matter of Jesus coming into his public ministry is all presented in a way in which Jesus comes to recapitulate the story of the nation of Israel. Because that's a funny thing that he quotes Hosea 11.1 Out of Egypt have I called my son. That doesn't, that's not a prophecy about Jesus. That's not Hosea looking forward to Jesus coming. That's a prophecy of Hosea looking back to Israel's rescue from Egyptian bondage. He says, out of Egypt have I called my son. What does that have to do with Jesus? Well, it's the fact that Jesus is a true Israelite. And Jesus comes to recapitulate the story of the nation. And so a figure quite like Pharaoh, who goes about killing children, or at least desiring to kill children, only the midwives save the Hebrew children from being slaughtered by Pharaoh's decree. Herod does the very same thing. He puts to death the children of Bethlehem because he fears the seed of the woman. He fears the birth of the child that will be the king of the Jews. Just as Pharaoh's wrath feared the growth of the nation of Israel, God's son. It was the fear of the son of God that caused both of those wicked monarchs to do those wicked acts of taking the lives of these children. But Jesus is called out of Egypt where he's protected from the wrath of Herod. Israel was taken out of Egypt by God's own might and power. And both were brought to a sea. The people of Israel to cross over the Sea of Reeds. Jesus to enter the Jordan. To be baptized by John in the sea. And no sooner does Israel come out of the Red Sea and Jesus comes out of the Jordan, what's the next scene? Wilderness. Wilderness. Israel's led through the wilderness. Ultimately, after the matter of the golden uh, failure to enter into the land, it's 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Jesus has 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And it's interesting, in the book of Deuteronomy, the three great lessons that Israel was designed to learn in the wilderness is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Israel was taught, according to Deuteronomy, that they should not tempt the Lord thy God. God put them into that temptation scene for the very purpose of teaching them these things. And then he put them into that temptation scene to teach them that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And those are the very points, in fact, the very verses that Jesus quotes with respect to his own temptations in the wilderness. That God put Israel into the school of his grace through suffering in the wilderness to teach them those things. Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil to learn the very same lessons. And so you not only come out of Egypt, come to a sea, come into a wilderness. But what's the next scene? Israel comes to a mountain, and so does Jesus. He ascends a mountain, and he begins to speak the words of the Beatitudes. God gave the words of the law from the mountain. Jesus gives the Beatitudes, the blessings from the mountain. See those parallels? I mean, I think they're rich. And I think they're intentional. I don't think any of that is accidental. 
I think it was in Luke's mind, uh, Matthew's mind, when he structured the sermon, the, the, the book, in the way that he structured it. And so you have origins, you have preparation, you have recapitulation of the experience of the nation, you have the public ministry in Galilee, you have the journey that ultimately comes to Jerusalem, just like Luke did, where Jesus is arrested, tried, crucified, and risen, where in post-resurrection appearances he comes to his disciples. So it's a similar pattern. There's also similar patterns to Mark in the fact that there are clear delineations, clear differences between sections of teaching and sections of narrative. But again, Matthew takes it a step further. Matthew's always taken the other things and taking it a good step further. Because Matthew taking the teachings further actually presents us with extended sermons. We have extended sermons in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, it's structured around five sermons. Five sermons. The first one most of us know. The first one most of us are familiar with. It's the most famous sermon in all the Bible. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the only sermon in the book. But all five sermons Matthew 5 to 7, Matthew 10 which is a sermon he speaks to the apostles about the mission he sent them out to perform. Chapter 13, which is 53 verses of parables being told. Then chapter 18, instruction that really is related to the matter of church life and forgiveness. Church life and forgiveness. And then chapters 24 and 25 have to do with things to come. Prophecy both with reference to the Jerusalem and its city, with reference to the end of the age. An eschatological, prophetic message we call the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24 and 25. At the end of each of these sermons, you know what Mark Matthew does? He gives us the same, the same words. The same words. At least it's in some form of the following. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, then he went about and he did this. That's, at the, at the, that's there It's 728, when he finished all of these sayings. Chapter 11 and verse 1, when he finished all of these sayings. Chapter 13, verse 53, when he finished all these parables. Chapter 19 and verse 1, when Jesus finished saying these things. Chapter 26 and verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So that's intentional, don't you think? At the end of every one of these sermons, Jesus says, and when Jesus had finished all of these things. Now these are five sermons. They're not lectures. They're not little opinion pieces. They're not commentary. They're not homilies. They're full-blown sermons. And one of the reasons I asked Tom to read both Deuteronomy and Matthew is that at the end of the sermons you find in the Bible, God always says something like, I've set before you life and death. I've set before you blessing and cursing. Choose life. Choose life. I've set before you good and evil. 
Choose the good. Put away the evil. In other words, sermons are practically directed to change. They're directed to our minds and our hearts to bring us to commitment, to bring us to decision, to tell us that these are not just unimportant stuff. This is the stuff of life and death. This is the stuff of condemnation and justification. This is the stuff of heaven and of hell. And the thing about each of these sermons is they all end with that sort of thing thrown at you. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, how does it end? Well, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. He that hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken unto a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. He that hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, I will liken unto a foolish man who puts, builds his house on the sand where the rain and the wind and the floods come, it destroys it. Take heed. Be careful. Hear these words of mine and do them. There's going to be a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. Wise and foolish builders. The mission instruction of chapter 10 ends with he that seeks to save his life will lose it. He that loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. It's finding life or losing it. The parables of chapter 13 all end with the separation of the evil from the righteous at the end of the, end of the age. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. The unrighteous will be cast out. The Olivet Discourse, I'm sorry, the separation between the forgiving and the unforgiving is a question of whether you will be forgiven or not be forgiven. Or whether you will be cast out into outer darkness. The Olivet Discourse of 24 and 25, it ends, as Tom read it this morning, with the separation of the sheep and the goats. Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or depart from me ye cursed, that the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and of the angels. Each sermon points to the contrast of life and death, of righteousness, unrighteousness, heaven and hell, and each sermon contains an an urgent call to make clear our own choice. To choose life. To choose righteousness. To choose the way of God and of heaven and holiness. The sermons of the Bible are not just information. They present the issues of life that demand decision. That demand that we part with the things that don't matter and adhere to what does matter in a way of faith and of faithfulness. So we've dealt with the sources, we've dealt with the structure. What about the story? Well, I've already said it's promise and fulfillment. It's promise and fulfillment. It's the God who watches over his word. All of his words spoken through the prophets of old. 
All the prophets, all the promises he made from the foundation of the world now comes to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has entered history to fulfill the promises, to fulfill the words of the prophets, to recapitulate the life of the nation. And so really what you have in the Old Testament is you have these patterns, the patterns of the way God did things when he redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt. And that pattern gets recapitulated in the life of Jesus. You have patterns that Jesus fulfills in the way of his ministry having this correlation to those Old Testament patterns. God sets those patterns up in the Old Testament for a reason. He's telling us the way he saves sinners. He's telling us the way he redeems sinners. It's like taking people out of captivity. It's like we're releasing them from the bondage to an emperor who won't let them go. Who's hard-hearted and doesn't have their best interests at heart at all. And all that gets transferred to the reality of the power of darkness. And the power of God's grace at work in the redemption that Christ brings. So Jesus fulfills the patterns. He fulfills the promises that this world that is guilty before God, God will save it. God will bruise the head of the serpent. There will be the restoration of Edenic bliss. There is a going back to the garden. Jesus speaks about the restoration of all things. He says, what, what will we have? Jesus says, in this life, you have all these tr- troubles. Well, you have all these things with persecutions. But in the regeneration, or the regeneration of the world, not just the soul, there's going to be a regeneration of the world. All things will be made new. And Jesus comes to fulfill the, that promise. And Jesus comes to fulfill the prophetic word. All these things were done to fulfill that which was spoken by the, pro- the prophet saying. And so in a world of cursing, blessing will come through Christ. In a world of death, life now comes through Christ. In a world of hopelessness, hope is now present in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God comes to fulfill the promise, the prophecies, and the patterns of the Old Testament. In Jesus, God fulfills his covenant promises and commitments to Abraham and, and David. That's why it begins the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's the restoration of the kingdom as the new king of the Jews is born. As Jesus takes the throne of his glory it is through, his, through death and resurrection. There is the destruction of the old and the bringing of the new. The restoration of the kingdom of blessing. Through the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Through disciples that are made in all the nations. A new age dawns. And, and will culminate in an age in which in the time when the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Really, the end of the age, the end of the day, the whole purpose of Matthew's gospel, the whole story of Matthew's gospel, is really the culmination of what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. You know, the, Matthew's gospel is really known for the Sermon on the Mount. It's known for the Lord's Prayer. It's also known for the Great Commission. 
That's why I think a lot of people really love Matthew's Gospel. You know, if they read Matthew's Gospel, they're going to come into the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to see the Lord's Prayer in its full, fullest version, and they're also going to find the Great Commission that ends the book. But in that Lord's Prayer, we are praying that on this earth there would be a howling of his name, a coming of his kingdom, and a doing of his will that will approximate those realities done in heaven. Jesus has come to bring that about. Jesus has come to bring about in his own fulfillment of the promises, in his own fulfillment of the prophecies, in his own fulfillment of the patterns, a world that will finally know the reality of God's name hallowed, God's kingdom having come, God's will being done upon this earth, even as it's done in heaven. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that even in the midst of my own distress with breathing, we can yet contemplate the riches of this book of Matthew, the fullness of the revelation you've given to us through the scriptures, and have something of a, a sense of the, the goodness of your own love in providing us these written accounts of the life of our Lord Jesus that are composed so richly and so interestingly and in giving us a, a deeper sense of him whom to know is life eternal and to give us a sense of the length and the breadth and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, to know the exceeding riches of your grace and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus, to know the ultimate purposes of your grace in this world, to bring about the regeneration of all things, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We ask you, Lord, to be pleased to bless us as we study these Gospels in weeks to come, and that we would come to know you better, to love you supremely, and to live in the comforts and the joys of your grace and your salvation, as we'd ask for these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.